Welcome to or welcome back to the Journey Through Life podcast. I am Justin Barton and am the host of this show. I'm super grateful to have you here as a listener today. And as you listen today or on or to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. Acting on that can and will bring great blessings and joy to you and that person that comes to mind and possibly to their posterity for generations to come. I am very excited to continue this very special 12-week series of the Journey Through Life podcast. It's coming to a close. There's only two more episodes, including this one left. And this series is called Journey in Recovery. I've interviewed many different people from many different locations on a lot of different and with a lot of different backgrounds on one of each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Just a quick heads up, this one that's coming out today with Phil is one of the most powerful conversations I've had thus far. I feel that this is a vital episode and is very appropriate to share with young men and young women as parents feel it appropriate it an appropriate age to do so. But this story starts with Phil at age 12 and is really relatable to many issues of today. Now, before you tell yourself that this doesn't apply to you, as you are not an addict, or because you feel that you are in, a com- in complete control of your own life and in the life of your family, I'm asking you to please give it a shot for the next several weeks. Whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we all have weaknesses in our lives. Some of those are things that may only be known to by ourselves, but we really wish we could move past them and have tried many times to do so. But try as we will, we have not been able to leave them behind. I've experienced that learning of and applying the 12 steps of recovery can be beneficial to any human being who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their lives. I believe that they will be able to move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. These can include anything from full-blown drug and alcohol addiction, including prescription medications, or something as dire as cutting or eating disorders, or sex addiction, or something as seemingly insignificant but just as gripping as smartphones, social media, and video games. This week, we will be talking to Phil about Step 12. Phil's story starts, as I mentioned earlier, at 12 years old with exposure to internet pornography and quickly spins out of control to suicidal thoughts and plans. We follow his journey and desperate search for healing and a return to the feelings he had before he was exposed to pornography. In this conversation, he refers to a structured program that helped him finally find the way to the solution. He doesn't name the program, but afterwards, he let me know that I could let all know what that program is. It's called ARPsupport.org, and it's a 12-step sponsorship program targeted primarily to men and women who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who are also sex addicts and other addicts. But anyone is welcome to participate. But some of the documentation draws from scripture and leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, if this is your first episode of this series, or of this podcast as a whole, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to some of the previous episodes, or all of the previous episodes of this Journey in Recovery series at some point. There are 12 steps, and they are in a prescribed order for a reason. So whether you do that now, or after you listen to this episode... I heartily invite you to listen to the others and then continue with the last few episodes over the next week. Step 12 reads, Having had a spiritual awakening, as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics or other addicts and practice these principles in all our affairs. I highly encourage you to take notes, whether they be mental notes or physical notes, while you are listening as thoughts come to mind about what you might be able to do in your own life to improve things in your own life. And then at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now, kick back, hit the road, work out, do house or yard work, or whatever you do while listening to podcasts, especially now when we're kind of in a somewhat forced isolation, and learn something while you are by yourself or with your family. Now, You may gain some great insights here. I invite you to be open to them. Here we go with Phil. (music) 
So through the magic of the internet, I'm sitting here with Phil, and I'm grateful to have him sit down with me. Phil, why don't you introduce yourself as if you were in a 12-step meeting? Yeah, I'd love to. My name is Phil. I'm a sexaholic. My sobriety date is 7-10 of 2015. I have many weaknesses, character weaknesses. I am a son of God, somebody who has hopes and dreams. Awesome. Thanks, Phil, for for being willing to sit down with me. So tell, you mentioned that you're a sexaholic. Tell me a little bit about what that means to you and what your experiences is in um, discovering that it was an addiction in your life. Yeah, so let's see. When I was 12, I got introduced to pornography uh, via the internet. I wasn't curious about sex or anything like that until it, uh, an image popped up on the screen and uh, I was, it was over at that point. I remember uh, being just completely just enthralled in, in the image. And at that point, I could not get my mind away from that. And so then started on this, uh, this snowball going down a hill and continually having to find more and more uh, images, more and more videos, more and more things. And really, it started to take over my entire life. It started to be something that I would choose to do instead of things like eating, doing it instead of things like interacting with friends, instead of things like interacting with my family. It started to take precedence over many of my decisions. And it got to the point where uh, when I was, when I was 12, 13, when I was a year into my recovery, I could not control anything. And so at that point I laid out a suicide plan Wow! and I knew that I was, I, I could not go on with life because I no longer had choice. Hmm. At that point I ended up, I ended up having this thought that went into my head and it was, you know, if God's real, that's not a very smart choice. I don't, I don't know why. I don't understand why that was the thought that came into my head. But that's the thought that came into my head. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And so I actually went out back. There's this orchard back behind my house. And I, I knelt down and, and just prayed to a higher power, to a God. Because I didn't know. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really believe in a God that would allow this stuff to be thrown at a 12 year old boy. Mm. And so uh, I had a really uh, amazing experience where I don't doubt that God is present, that God is real. Obviously I'm still here today. And so that let, led me on a, a journey that uh, up until four and a half years ago uh, led me to try and figure out how on earth do I find choice again, because I had lost choice I had lost my ability to make a decision of what I wanted and how do I, how do I regain that again into my life? Wow. So going back a little bit, you were introduced to pornography at 12 years old. And in that first year you had already spun out of control to the point where you were like, uh, something's got to die here. It's either myself or the old way of living. And, and you had made that plan of carrying out, suicide at 12, 13 years old, huh? Yes. That's, that's pretty painful. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not something that I, you know, even now, like I still have, you know, if I think back on that time, it's really hard to remember that time because, you know, I had hopes and dreams. I wanted to be, I wanted to play, you know, high school soccer. I wanted to be the best at what I was doing. And what would always happen is as soon as I'd get out of a structured environment like school and I'd get home, then the only thing that my mind could think about was how could I get, you know, for lack of better terms, get my next fix. Yeah. How could I get my next moment to, to uh, relieve this pain that I feel because I can't make a choice. Yeah. I, I really appreciate Phil, the way that you are describing this um, journey into addiction and how it's so quickly especially in regards to sex addiction, how it so quickly for you just spiraled into, and you recognized that it spiraled into something that was out of control. 
Now, whether you were able to control it for a long time or not, that's a different story, right? And even now, would you say you control this? No, this is not something that I control. This is something that I let go of. Yeah. What, uh, I think what a lot of people, and I've, I've said this before in my life, um, and I've heard lots of other people say this, and I think I've said this in one of the one or two of these interviews that I've done on these steps is what do you say to somebody who says, dude, you're a teenage boy. All teenage boys are just like that. What do you say to somebody who says something like that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really hard question and a really good one to ask because you know, the only thing that I can give, the thing that I've, that I've learned, and this is where when we get to talk about step 12, we'll talk about you can only share what you've got. You know, and all I've got is my example and my story. So for me, when I really evaluated myself, I've always been somebody who evaluates where I'm at, what I'm feeling. I've been that way even before 12 years old. Mm. And what I found was that when I wanted to do something, so there was a part of me that really wanted to get outside in the backyard and juggle the ball mm. and get good at that. I wanted to learn how to skateboard. I wanted to spend more time with my friends. But what happened was I could not make that choice mm. because I would then spend the next few hours stuck in a room with a computer hoping that my parents wouldn't walk in. Walk in then felt a lot of shame and guilt and frustration because it did not feel right to me. Hmm. And whenever I was done viewing, I never felt satisfied. So in my mind, I wanted peace. I wanted happiness. I wanted confidence. I wanted love. But in my mind, all I was feeling at that time was frustration, um, fear, annoyance, struggle, and that I wasn't worth anything. Now, yes, I understand that many, many kids go through those feelings. Mine were tied specifically to my viewing of pornography and masturbation. So, and another thing that I hear, and I don't think I hear this quite as much, at least vocally, quite as much as I used to, or I believe it's still very entrenched in the culture, is there's nothing wrong with pornography. It's an art form. It's, it's, a, it's a consensual thing that people get into. What's your take on, on, on that about pornography specifically? Yeah, um, in doing research and uh, in my, my progression through getting to the point where I finally let go of this, this addiction, I came across information that really it's not consensual. It's acting. And that majority of those women, majority of those men, they're on, they're on drugs, they're on antidepressants, they're not happy. And that really hit me. Because if they're not happy while that's doing it, and I'm not happy while I'm doing this, then how can this be something good? Mm. And so... I, I mean, my personal belief and what I've learned and what I've, what I've read, uh, there is no, there's very little that people are actually happy and loving it. And, you know, I don't know about you, but anytime I have to be in hiding for doing something and I'm not really proud of what I'm doing and not everybody does that, but that to me isn't very happy. That to me is, is really frustrating. And I, I like to be out with people. Yeah. So when, I mean, obviously you came to the point at 12 or 13 years old that you realized I've got a real problem here. I can't do anything about it. What do I do about it? And you talked a little bit about your journey as to trying to find what to do about it. When did you first get introduced to recovery in whatever form that was when you first were introduced to recovery? Um, When I was 19, I realized in order to uh, go do a a mission for for my church, Mm -hmm. I I needed to abstain from pornography and masturbation. And, and so I did. And while I was there, I focused like solely on God and focused on, on Jesus and focused on, on sharing a good message. And that was my entire time was spent doing that. 
And the desire and the pain started to go away at that point. So at that point, I knew or learned that I needed a higher power. I needed somebody greater than myself to have any impact on this because the, you know, what is that? The seven years prior to that, I had tried on my own and I had never been able to be successful at getting this out of my life. And so that was the very first time that I had any sort of success. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I, I abstained from pornography and masturbation for uh, a little over two years at that point. And then obviously something changed when you got back from that mission. Tell me a little bit about what happened to take you back to places that you had left behind during your mission. Yeah. So uh, when I was finishing up my mission, I had this thought. And again, I've always been somebody who is reflective. And so I evaluate myself and, and I tried to be as honest as I could with myself at that point and with the knowledge that I had. And what I thought was, if I go home and I no longer have the structure and the focus on God, and now it's going to be more on myself and I'm going to be out on my own, and I don't have this, this environment, I'm going to go back to it. That was the thought I had. And so I, I messaged my parents and I said, I need, I need some help. So at that point, I actually went to a psychiatrist. And I went to a psychologist and I went to uh, the LDS church's uh, addiction recovery program. Okay. From there, I actually, when I went to the addiction recovery program for the first time, I thought it was a joke. Mm. And, and, and just being honest with the situation, what I saw was a bunch of guys who uh, had hope in what I had hope in, but nobody had actually, nobody had, and we'll talk about this later, yep. nobody had the light Nobody had the, the peace and the comfort and the, the freedom that I was searching for. Yeah, nobody had that. And so for me, I was like, well, if nobody has that, then why am I going to go to this one? Right. And so then I went on a, on a journey. I wanted this out of my life. And I fought so hard to search and find so many places and so I did multiple internet programs trying to, trying to find and learn as much as I could about addiction and, and sexual addiction and, uh, until I had a moment. And I had what I call as a, a spiritual awakening. And so I actually remember I was sitting in Vegas, Vegas of all places. Right. right? I mean, that's, that's like a, you know, less that extreme. And I was sitting there, I was reading, uh, sitting in a rowboat, throwing marbles at a battleship. I don't know if you've ever read that, but uh, I had just finished reading the equation of AFXB, BFXC. And the only thing that I can, I can describe it as is I felt like I had a vision. And what I saw was two roads in front of me that were going in opposite directions. And I had this feeling that if I chose to go to one side, that I was going to lose my family. I was going to lose my job. I was going to lose everything. Because if I took one more step forward in that direction, I wasn't coming back because I had no more fight left in me. Because I had been fighting and fighting and fighting for so long to try and get rid of this addiction And so finally in that moment, I said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I don't care if it means that I've got to stop going to church. I don't care if it means that I've got to stop. I I didn't care. Mm -hmm. I was willing to do whatever it took. And the one thing, the absolute one thing I was not willing to do was to go to an SA meeting. Hmm. Because in my culture where, where I grew up, that was like, then you finally made it. Like you are the scum of the earth, you're the bottom of the barrel. And, and that's what I thought. And finally, I had had enough pain. And I had this, I believe it was a vision that then showed me that if I take another step in this way, I'm not going. So I, I have to go this route. 
And so I did, I went there and then I found uh, immediately was told about another program that had a lot of structure, a lot of, uh, I, I was able to get a sponsor. And at that point is when I actually started working the steps for the first time. And it's been almost five years since that day. So, so you went into an essay meeting, the thing that you definitely did not want to do <laughs> because you thought you'd go and see guys in trench coats that were just whatever, whatever it was yeah. in your mind that you envisioned this being. So when you went in, what were your emotions as you're approaching the door or whatever to that essay meeting for the first time? And then what did you learn about yourself and about that program in that first handful of meetings? Oh, you're bringing out emotions. Um, I, I have never been that scared, you know, and, and, and remember when I was 12, like I was ready to lose my life. And so I, I, I had felt scared, but this was a whole nother level in some ways because it meant that I was about to go in front of, in my mind, you know, quote unquote, the, the scum, you know, the, the worst people that I had been taught to, to believe and not from my parents, but just that was the aura around it that I was about to become that. And that was terrifying. And I felt like I was possibly going to get judged and I, I, nobody would understand my story. And, and I remember going into that meeting and for the first time, First time since I was 12. I mean, mind you, I was, I was 26, I think, at this time. Okay. So what is that? That's, that's 14 years? Yeah. 14 years, and I had never felt understood. And I walked in, and these guys gave me a handshake. They looked at me, and they said, we know, and we love you, hmm. and we care. And not that other people hadn't cared about me to that point, but what it was, was that they could see me as a whole. They didn't get to see just a portion of me that I was willing to show. I was able to show the parts of me that were the, the dirtiest and darkest parts of my entire life. And they loved me. And just, they, they loved me en enough to allow me a platform to share and not say anything mm. other than we get it. Mm. We understand. And was that from the first time, the first meeting you went to that you felt that acceptance and that love and that comfort there, or did it take a couple for you? Um, for me, it was the first time. Awesome. Uh, mind you though, um, I had been preparing and prepared and had already gone through a bunch of different meetings before and so, um, like I'd been to addiction recovery program meetings and other things. And so it wasn't the first shock. Now, if you go back to when I went to the addiction recovery program meeting, mm -hmm. then no, I didn't feel that same thing, mm -hmm. even though I'm sure that was what they were trying. I, I wasn't really willing to share, mm -hmm. but this is the first time that I went to a meeting and I was willing to open up and share about every aspect of my life and that I didn't care. And, and so that's when I felt it. It wasn't until I was willing to open up, hmm. but when I opened up, I felt it. Yeah. So possibly even in those first meetings you went to the, the addiction recovery program meetings, possibly the, the struggle with that was your own mm -hmm. closed, just holding on to things and not willing to open up at all. Huh? Yeah, I would. I mean, that's, that's a great way to explain it because it wasn't anything wrong with the program the program actually does an extremely good job of sharing the message of the savior. Mm. But I just was not ready to allow myself to be seen Yeah, at that point. Thank you for sharing that, ex the, that series of experiences. I think that will be, well, it's helpful to me, but I think it'll be very helpful to a lot of other people who hear this too, to not normalize, but understand that they're not alone. There's a lot of people that walk that same path that, uh, that you're walking there and there's resources for them. So you talked about getting a sponsor. Tell me about how that looked as you worked your steps. How, how did your sponsor take you through the steps? 
Yeah. So uh, my sponsor uh, was was sponsoring through a particular program that had already a bunch of structure. Mm-hmm. Within that structure, he held me accountable to certain rules, certain things. He held me accountable to sending to writing in a journal. So I wrote in a journal morning and evening, um, and I sent it to him morning and evening. I did a morning step work. Now that step work was typically reading a particular part of of, of a document that had a, a topic on step zero, step one, step two, depending on where I was. Mm-hmm. And then it, it uh, asked for me to share my thoughts. And a lot of times it was the same question, just asked in a different way. Right. And so I got to answer that multiple times. Um, I got to answer that in, in many different ways and it helped me see it from different sides. And so I went through the whole program that way. And when I got to step four, which step four is, you know, we make a, a, a fearless moral inventory, one where I actually open up and I have written down every single piece about my life and it's written down on a piece of paper, which I'll tell you that is one of the most terrifying things in the world, yeah. but it's one of the most free. And I put that all into a spreadsheet And, you know, the thing that is amazing that I want to point out here is that my sponsor, my sponsor never once looked at me and said, you did that. Hmm. (laughs) Never once did he, did he judge and say, I can't believe how bad of a person you are. Not once did he ever be surprised by anything that I put down. And in fact, it was almost always, (laughs) I get it. I, 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 I was there, you know, one of my, one of my favorite stories, and I'm going to butcher this cause, so I, I don't know the exact words of it. One of my favorite stories shows really what a sponsor is supposed to be. And my, it, it talks about how, you know, a politician, a, a, a guy falls into a pit and a politician walks by and, you know, he looks at the guy in the pit who's yelling for help. And he says, you know what? I care about you. I'm going to write a law that says you can get out of here. And then walks away, mm-hmm. you know, and it goes, it goes through a bunch of different people until it gets to another addict, a recovering addict mm-hmm. who hears the guy that's sitting in the, in the pit and he goes and he jumps in the pit with him. And the guy's like, you're stupid. Like why on earth are you, why on earth did you jump in here? Mm-hmm. And, and the recovering addict says, don't worry. I've been here before. I know the way out. And then he proceeds to lead the guy who got stuck in the pit out. And that is what my sponsor did. My sponsor helped guide me. And, and as long as I was willing to do whatever, whatever it took, as long as I was willing to stay sober and, and, and send morning and evening journal entries and do my morning step work first thing in the morning, then I received sobriety. And really began to learn what a life in recovery was like. Yeah. And that and that's a great example of step twelve that we're gonna be talking about here, you know. Um and and what step twelve reads from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and and you know, we'll adapt it here to what we're talking about. But it reads, having had a spiritual awakening, which is something you referred to earlier, kind of in that uh that vision you talked about. So having had a spiritual awakening as a, re- as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics, or in this case, sexaholics, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So Phil, tell me a little bit about what that step means to you and why that step is an important step in your own life. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as I've been preparing for this conversation, and really diving back into step 12 and, and making sure that I understood it, at least with my experience, what this, what this looks like to me and, and how it's applied in my life is that, number one, I can't give what I don't have. So if I haven't had that spiritual awakening, I cannot share it with somebody and I can't help them receive their own spiritual awakening. And second thing is that I need to be carrying this to as many people as possible 
saying I'm a sexaholic to my neighbor down the street isn't really something that that's a, <laughs> a good thing to do. Right. But they see a change and they see the light and, and sharing with them, you know, the, the light that I have that, that I've been able to, to be given, you know, this light was not something that I made. I tried making that light. Mm. It's impossible, but this light is made or not made. And this light is given and it's given by my higher power as a result of these steps, as it says, you know, hopefully I answered your question. That's what it's, it's been for me. Hmm. And, and how you say the light has been given you, how has, well, for example, you, you're, you're married. You mentioned your family earlier. You're married, correct? Yes. Yes, I am. How has that light and that spiritual awakening affected your marriage? Affected, how has your wife's perception of you changed? Maybe not perception, but experience with you changed. I would say it's both perception and experience. Specifically talking about my wife, you know, I talked to her yesterday. You know, I think in any relationship, you're going to have arguments. And, and, and more so, when, when I say argument, I mean you're trying to figure out how to mesh two histories to become a new one. Hmm. And when you have two histories that come together and a certain experience comes up that one person would react this way and the other person would react another way, you're going to have somewhat of a fireworks show. Doesn't mean that the fireworks are like I'm throwing things across the room, but it means that you're going to have a disagreement. Mm. And in the past, early on, especially in my marriage, my response was to, to immediately become the victim. My response was to then find something wrong about my wife and what she was saying. My response was to uh, start manipulating immediately. Now, is that really what I meant to do? Is that really what my intentions were? Is that really what, like in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to manipulate my wife. No, that's the whole thing about this sickness. That's the whole thing about this addiction is you have no idea what you're doing. But as I look back, that's exactly what was happening. And so I, I did that to my spouse. And as I received, I mean, it's, it's almost like... <laughs> To me, I can see it almost to the day, mm. till you know that time. I can see the change that started to happen when these moments would happen. Immediately, I would go to that victim. Mm. But you know what? The time frame that it took for me to then all of a sudden to 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 recognize that I was being selfish, or I was in the wrong, or that I I was you know if I had reacted this way, her response would not have been this, and I started to wake up. Again, it's an awakening. I started to wake up to see that, I, in my belief, that every reaction that my wife has is a direct result of how I responded just before that or how my choice made her go into a particular place that maybe I didn't know about. You know, and here, here's a perfect example. So yesterday, <laughs> this is yesterday, right? Four and a half years into sobriety. Yesterday, I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm, I'm off for work. It's Sunday. You know, we're home as a family. And I am I'm sitting there at the table and I have a thought in my head. The thought is, oh, I need to go upstairs and figure something out on the computer. Like, you know, it was, like, it was something that needed to get done. So I turn around and I walk upstairs. Mm -hmm. And I'm focusing on getting, getting done what I need to. And I get a text from my wife and it's, uh, you know, are you, are you working on a report? Because mm -hmm. I, I write reports and, and, and I go, no, do you need any help? Cause she was making dinner and she came up after that. And she said, essentially she was trying to help show me a social thing that is socially acceptable. And that I should have done was saying, Hey babe, I'm going upstairs to work on this and I'll be down in about 10, 15 minutes. But because my choice was to just turn around and walk upstairs, I got this reaction. You know what I immediately did? I turned into the victim. Mm. And so we start getting to this little back and forth where really we're starting to get a little heated. And finally, it hits me again. 
And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that was my fault. I did that. I set this up. I, you know, and I, and I start all of a sudden I start seeing where my wrong is Mm -hmm. and where my wife was completely in the right. And so then I immediately start applying step 10, which is recognize my wrong and make amends and turning to God. And the interaction changed, Mm. but that is the awakening. The awakening isn't that all of a sudden I'm going to have all these grand experiences with my wife and I'm going to, you know, my wife and I, because I'm sober, my wife and I are going to be super happy together every second of the day. That's bull crap. Yeah. Because that's not, that's not reality. And Mm. as an addict, I tried to stay out of reality as much as I could. And now the awakening is awakening me to reality and that I need to really how I, I need to always be assessing where my pro, where my fault is because it's rarely my wife's fault. Hmm. So that's an example. That's so my wife can see that we had that conversation after, because I was like, do you see that I'm changing? Mm-hmm. And she goes, yeah, like we're having less arguments and we don't have to have these big, long conversations all the time. Hmm. about how I I was so rude and I, you know, I, I hurt her and I, because I'm awakened. Those are some good examples. I like that. Um, Tell me how you um, work your step 12. I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but tell me how you work it on a daily basis. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, I think I, I got lost from, really applying my step 12 as much as, as much as I used to. Um, and this conversation has really brought me back to really focusing on that. So I really appreciated that. But a big chunk of working my step 12 is that I always ask myself questions at the end of the day. And those questions, you know, start with really what step 10 is, you know, step 10, have I offended anybody today? Mm -hmm. And if so, I need to make amends. And then I go into my step 11 and I've really been working on, am I connecting with God or am I just talking at him? Hmm. But step 12 is, am I grateful? Am I seeing, am I, am I really identifying that my life has changed or am I getting back into a rut of this is just habit and this is just who I am? Or am I sitting here going, you know what? I am so grateful that God gave me this, this freedom from my addiction. And so when I work, what it looks like for me to work it is that I'll usually say a a prayer of gratitude and recognizing that. Then one of the things that I'll always try to do is I am always open to sharing a principle of recovery to anybody that I meet. Hmm. My coworkers, a lot of them know that I am an addict. Now they don't know what kind, right? but they know that I have addictive tendencies and that has led to them opening up about their own addictions, Mm. which has then led to me creating some of the truest friends that I've ever been able to, to gain. Right. And, and we then share our successes and really share the principles of recovery. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Okay you know, without giving too much information about myself, but I play a sport and I play competitively. Mm -hmm. I uh, was at a particular competition and I was talking with, with a, with an individual that I had met a few times before and had had competed against. And uh, we were, we were discussing and talking and I just kept getting this feeling in the back of my mind of share, 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 and I'm sitting there thinking, like, no, like, what? I don't want to share this, like, out in the public. This is open. This is like, right. like, I don't want to. I don't want to share because there's anybody that could walk past mm-hmm. and hear me talking about my addiction. And I just kept getting that prompting. And so finally, I was like, fine, like this, and and that fine. That's step twelve mm. of fine. And I opened up and I shared with him my experience, mm. and I shared with him just enough of what I felt like I was being prompted to share. And he opened up 
And to this day, he is one of my most, he's one of my, my dearest friends. Hmm. So I believe that working step 12 and actually working step 12 goes deeper than just, I'm just grateful and I'm sharing with every addict. I believe that step 12 is sharing the principles of freedom from any type of thing that I have that's taking control of my life hmm. and learning those things and then sharing that I am vulnerable and that I struggle. And as I struggle and as I really work hard at trying to meet the needs of these barriers that are preventing me from connecting to my higher power, connecting to other people, as I work on those and I share that story, there is somebody else that will take it and they will finally find the key for their own happiness. To me, that is step 12. That is working step 12. It becomes a way of life. It becomes a way that I, I can't function unless I am sharing that. Because if I don't do that, God will take it away from me. Hmm. Okay, so expound on that a little bit. If I don't do that, God will take it away from me. Tell, tell me why you believe that, and tell me if you have any experience either in your own life with that or maybe observing somebody firsthand where that has happened. Yes. Um, so in the 12 steps, we recognize that we of ourselves are powerless. That's very step one. And uh, what I experienced with that was despair (laughs) and that there was no way that I could get out of my life until I recognized, which is step two, the hope that there is a way, but that way is through a higher power. So essentially the only way that I can have 24 hours, a minute, a second of sobriety that I'm not hanging on to something that I'm not white knuckling it is if God is granting me his grace and is making it possible for me to have sobriety. And so I would say, you know, with your question uh, 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 regarding, you know, a moment where that was taken away, that ebbs and flows throughout my day. That ebbs and flows throughout my weeks. And sometimes I go months where that's taken away because I am trying to take back the control. You know, I used to think one of the stupidest songs in the entire world was Jesus take the wheel Mm. because I always thought and grew up that, that it was, it was by my power and that if I just, I just, you know, buckled down and I work hard and put as much effort into it that I can, that Mm -hmm. I would be able to be successful. And that is not the case in addiction. The more you do that, the more you stay. So you have to do the opposite and let go completely, which feels so opposite of what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. And so it's a daily practice. And so for me, I mean, uh, there's been many moments throughout my life, you know, uh, where I am not letting go and I feel frustration. I feel fear. I I feel, I, I teach people all the time, about um, the fruits of recovery because they're, they're an easy way for you to identify whether or not you're in sobriety or whether or in recovery or whether you're white knuckling. Mm. Because if I'm in sobriety, I feel peace. I feel love. I feel hope. I feel comfort. Mm. But if I'm white knuckling, I'm starting to feel fear. I'm starting to feel frustration. I'm starting to, to feel anxiety And not just the regular everyday anxiety, but it's the anxiety about my recovery. And so I feel like I fall out of that and God takes that away. So he takes, he takes away the peace because he's the one that gives it Hmm. is that he takes that away. And then I feel all this anxiety and stuff, all the fruits of white knuckling Mm -hmm. and not until I'm willing to, in a way, grovel back and say, okay, whatever is the next thing that you want me to do, what is the next thing? Hmm. Then he goes, ah, finally, <laughs> here, here you go. And he gives it back. I've been waiting for you, huh? Exactly. Because I do believe that God is waiting for each of us who are addicts, that he is waiting to give it to us. The problem is, is that we stand in the way. Hmm. It's never him. It's always me. 
I like how you're sharing these things. Um, good self-reflection. It's good advice for others listening. One of the things I've learned in doing this process of speaking with, you know, recovering addicts on each of the 12 steps over the last several few months has been a lesson that I learned for myself from talking with these other people. I've had people say, you know, I live in step two. I live in step seven or I live in step 11. That is where I live in my own recovery. And I came to learn probably about uh, the fifth or sixth week of doing this, that I live in step 12. That's where my heart is and where almost everything that I see in recovery when I'm reading whether it's scripture or when I'm listening to inspired people share their experiences, I hear step 12 in all of those things and apply it to, to, to my own life. And for me, one of the most powerful um, experiences or powerful uh, examples of step 12 comes from the New Testament. So this is after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. And he comes back and, and he sees his disciples, Peter, they're out there fishing and they haven't caught anything all night. <laughs> and then, and then he says, Hey guys, go catch some fish, you know, <laughs> throw your net on the other side, catch some fish. And they come in and realize it's Jesus. And, and they're sitting there eating fish. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Well, yeah, I love you. Now, do you love me? Well, yeah, we'll feed my sheep. And does this three times. And Peter, who was the first disciple, the one that jumped out of his ship when Jesus very first said, hey, come follow me, and was with him all the time and just enthusiastic and zealous about everything. And yet he kept falling on his face, you know, the whole time. Mm -hmm. Then uh, Jesus says to Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And if I'm Peter right there, my natural man instinct is to be like, are you kidding me? When I'm converted, have I not been following? Have I not been the first one in line every single time? Have I not been following you? But Jesus like says, no, when you're converted, strengthen your brothers. And that is kind of where his heart turned. And he became this great disciple who lived the gospel, who healed people just as Jesus had done, who did these, you know, the, the leader of the church after Christ's ascension. And uh, he became converted. And that's the whole, to me, that's the principle of step 12. When I'm converted, when I have that spiritual awakening, I need to strengthen others. Because if I do, I have this knowledge. And, and you talked about this, and this is what, what brought it to my mind. If I have this knowledge and don't do anything about it, it doesn't do me or anybody else any good, and it will be taken from me. And uh, to me, that is step 12 in, in just a handful. Do you have any particular you know, passages of scripture, quotes, or anything like that that really just ring out to you in recovery? Oh, yeah. You know, some of the most important scriptures, I mean, I, I believe in a book called the Book of Mormon. There's one in there that's uh, called Mosiah. It's Mosiah 319. And in that passage of scripture, it talks about the natural man being an enemy to God and, and will be uh, unless he becomes like a child and yields. And uh, that's one that for me helped me distinguish a couple things. Number one is that, that my natural man is the one that's in charge and that's the one that's got to say, okay, hmm. because my spirit is always willing. Hmm. So my natural man's the one that's got to say, yes, you can, I'll live a life too without my addiction. And so that's been a huge one. Another one is uh, Ether 1227. And that one is essentially talking about two things. One is weak things will become strong, but even more so that if I go to God, he's going to show me my weaknesses. And I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, you know, when I go to God and if I truly go to him, he will show me who I've offended, who I've, who I have essentially ruined their day or possibly altered the way that they think because of my manipulation or whatever it is. And he'll show that to me. So I've, I've loved that scripture. And then uh, I believe it's Philippians 4.13, where it's, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. 
because all of those scriptures helped give me hope, but then also guided me in my journey to where I am today. Mm. And, and so I use those three, those are probably the three main ones. I have many others, but those are the three off the top of my head that really come out. Awesome. Those are really great examples. I love them. Before I go to a couple of wrap up questions, is there anything else in specific to step 12 or your own story that you feel is important to share at this point? Yeah. Um, I was talking about it with one of, uh, one of my friends in, in recovery just today. And, and it really, it's, it's that for me, recovery is about being, is a process. I think so often we're looking at becoming or getting somewhere. It's a destination. And the more that I learn about recovery, it's not that. And it's becoming somebody different. And that is always, you know, for lack of better terms, line upon line, precept upon precept. It's, it comes and, and, and we change a little bit at a time. And so I will never really see the change until months down the road. But if I give up on it early, I will never see the change. And so when I talk to people and they, they're frustrated that they acted out, they're frustrated that they, you know, quote unquote, failed. Mm-hmm. I always talk about really that, yes, you made a decision and a choice, but recovery is never failure. Acting out is never failure. What it really is, is it's an opportunity for you to progress and to change and to to become something different because I would not have gotten to where I was four and a half years ago if I hadn't have had when I was 12 and I was ready to, you know, and I was ready to end my life. If I hadn't have struggled through 13 to 18 and if I hadn't have had the two years of sobriety in on my, on my mission and then gone home and gone back to it and struggled and then struggled with it in a marriage and, and gone through that. If I hadn't have done all that, I would not have gotten to the point Hmm. where I finally was willing to let go. And so I'm a huge, huge advocate for progression and that recovery will come when it's time. Hmm. And so sometimes we try to force recovery we don't allow life to, to really play its part. And, and we need to allow life to, to play because God will use life to make it so that we can have, we can, we can progress and become something different. So I'm a huge, huge advocate for progression and that, you know, it's never a failure. You know, if you're resetting your sobriety date, that's great. Sobriety dates mean very little Mm -hmm. other than, that's how big of a miracle you receive. Yeah. It's all it is. And so it's, it's about really trying to progress. So that's, that's a huge part. And then the other part is that, you know, if, if you're listening to this message and you're listening to this podcast, hopefully what you found is that you're not alone. You really aren't. That there are many, many people. The more that I am open, the more that I am the more that I am letting myself out and becoming a part of this, of recovery and letting it be a part of me and that my decisions are based on my experience and recovery, the more that I find that every single person that I interact with has the same issues. It's just going to be something different. Mm. And so we are not alone. That is the biggest lie. Yes. Am I alone? Is, is my addiction maybe different than my neighbors? Heck yeah. But I believe that we all do in one way or another, and we're all compensating for struggling with the crap that's life. And very few of us are actually looking to the savior and God and actually accessing the peace. Hmm. And we're turning to ice cream at night. Turning to to brownies, turning to video games, turning to TV shows, turning to all those things. And I still do those things. And it's because I am not willing to really let go enough yet. Hmm. We're all there. So those are the things that I really, if I, you you know, with your question, like, you know, if if this was not about step 12 and you wanted to talk about recovery, Mm -hmm. that's what I preach. That's what I talk about because 
in my life, that is what my experience has been. Mm. And I think that leads into one of the two wrap-up questions I have really well. In fact, I think you defined one of the words that I want to ask very well. But I'd like to ask you to define in your own experience the words abstinence, sobriety, recovery, and healing. Ooh. All right, we'll start with abstinence. Abstinence, I believe, is just refraining. So I'm distancing myself from something. So if I'm being abstinent from sex, I'm not having sex. It's, it's the action. Mm-hmm. Sobriety, I would use that, or the, the way I would des- describe sobriety is that I am starting to work towards working on the issues that make it so that I have to, I, I, I want more of whatever it is. So if, I, if I'm sober from sugar, it's not that I'm just refraining from sugar. It's that I'm actively working on the things that are driving me to go towards sugar. Okay. And sobriety is a, is a length of time. Now recovery is that I have let go. It's the act of I've actually, I'm in the process. I'm still working on things, but I've let go and said, you know what, God, whatever it is that you asked me to do, I'm willing to do that, including heaven forbid, having to let go of sugar, (laughs) right? But I'm willing to let it go. And so I'm in recovery because I am in that active moment of trying to let go. I believe healing is the result that comes and that's given when we're in active recovery. But healing is a process and healing takes time. And you know what? I cannot tell you how many times in my life where I've had the struggle of I want to, un- I want to be healed from this right now and not being healed. But you know what? Six months down the road and after having addressed it and given it to God and said, you know, what? whatever it is that you want me to do, I'll do. Then through little things that he's placed in my path, that he's given me, put me in situations, it changed me. And in that process healed me. And so I believe that, I believe that all of those are, are, again, I look at life as progression, right? Mm-hmm. I think that being abstinent is a great thing to practice. I think that it's a start learning sobriety or being in sobriety. That's where you really start immersing yourself in the steps. When you finally come to that moment where you, for me, it was a vision, but you come up with that awakening and you're willing to let go and actually work every part of recovery, you are now in recovery. And then through time, you gain blessings. Mm. So hopefully that makes sense. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing that experience. And one last uh, wrap-up question, and it's more of an invitation. I'm, a- I'm asking you to speak directly to the listener and invite them to hopefully take a step towards the experiences that you've experienced in your recovery journey. Yeah. For anybody who's listening, really it's more of a plead because living in the life that was my addiction was pure hell and learning to let go and work and open up myself to these people that are in these 12 step meetings finally allowed me to gain freedom. And so I guess my invitation is to go. My invitation is to be open to the possibility that you are worth it. Be open to the possibility that you can have freedom. Because even if you've spent 40 years trying to figure this out, I know people right now who are actively working the steps that have been trying for 40 years and are finally finding that success and happiness. Don't ever give up. Don't ever back off. Don't ever let that darkness that's there, don't ever let that take hold forever. Try your darndest to let go and allow the process to work because it will. That's been my experience. So that's my invitation. Awesome. 
Well, Phil, this has been a really meaningful conversation for me. I hope it's been meaningful for you. And very therapeutic. I loved it. <laughs> so there it is. Step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry these me- this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, if you felt or were motivated to take some steps in your own life to make some changes, I invite you, no, I plead with you, as Phil did, to enter a room, get a sponsor, and start on the path. Slips and falls do not equate failure. In this time of pandemic and social distancing, getting to a physical meeting likely won't happen, but there are countless call-in meetings, webcam meetings, etc. Go to these. I'll put many of them in the show notes for your reference. Just get out and take the next step now. Once again, the program that Phil referenced is called arpsupport.org. You can check that out if you'd like, and there are many other programs. Now for the housekeeping part of the program. Please go and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at at JTL Podcast. Like and follow us. Also come check out our website, www.jtlpod.com. You can check out old episodes there. Um, learn a little bit more about me if you want to. Um, check out our sponsors there. And speaking of our sponsors, um, I will get to them in just a minute. You can also drop us a note about your own experiences, strength, and hope, and stories at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com. Now to those sponsors. Um, I have purposely not put them in at the beginning of the episode for this 12-week series, but they really are helping this podcast continue forward, and I really do love and appreciate the products and services they offer. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, RadfordPinesHomeDecor.com. When you're at those sites, um, especially, well, primarily at alifeuntold.com, use promo code Justin to save 10%. And when you're at Shepherd Brackets and Radford Pines, use promo code JTLPOD5 to save 5% on your orders there. Now, these conversations that I've recorded in this Journey in Recovery series really have been life-changing for me as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning, and I am definitely becoming a different and better person for it, and I hope you are too. Have a great week, and press forward one day at a time. Mm